At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. What a special episode today, episode number 140, and thank you so much for tuning into it. It is much appreciated. Today we have Alvin Law. I think you're going to enjoy it. I sure enjoyed having him on. He's an internationally acclaimed speaker, member of the Speaker Hall of Fame, and a personal inspiration to me. I saw him speak for the first time when I was about 17 years old and never forgot it. Hopefully, this is going to be a conversation that you never forget either. Thank you for tuning in. No, that's uh, you're you're not wrong. It's tough to find your way <laughs> to, to to do this place sometimes, but thanks for making the time. Thanks for being here, and I've uh, been really looking forward to it, Alvin. Mark, I have too. I um, you know, it, this COVID thing has changed so much of the way that we market ourselves, and uh, this is nice. I'm instead of on a podcast with my iPad and looking into a screen, I can look right at you face to face. This is really a nice treat. Well, it's so much better. Um, when I do the Zoom things, that's all right. Uh, phone is less all right. Yeah. But uh, you just can't replace being able to sit face-to-face and actually connect with somebody. Yeah. And, uh, and that's kind of been a big part of the COVID. Uh, people staying in their own houses, staying in their bubbles. And uh, I've come to, a, um, I, I don't know how much you know about my show, but it's a PTSD recovery podcast. And that injury... Uh, create so much isolation because when you keep blowing up the room, as I call it, mm. you know, because uh, you're the one that had a fit or you had an anger burst or, mm. or, or whatever it was, um, uh, you just don't want to be that guy anymore. So you just stay away from people and you isolate yourself. And now everybody's doing that for fear and um, just trying to follow the rules and, and do what they think is right. And uh, the amount of pain that has been caused, the suicide rates, the the amount of um, talk to mental health professionals. There's there's a world I know because of my show, right? And um, the they're just overwhelmed with uh, with depression and anxiety, and there's been a lot, a lot because of all of this. And I think there there you're talking to the eternal optimist here, so let's get that straight audience right <laughs> off the very beginning. If I annoy you with my optimism, I apologize. But in fact, it, 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 it's true. I experienced a shock to my system. It didn't hit right at the beginning of the COVID, but I noticed, and I even wrote about it, um, that it, it, it sort of hit around early 2021. And it really didn't lift. I could feel the weight of it. And I know what depression is. I know what it looks like. I've experienced it. I've, I've held, it's, it's happened to me on several occasions. Not the debilitating kind, although when my mom died, we can talk about that in a bit. But I didn't realize until the summer what was going on, that I had to really work hard at trying to figure out a way to dig myself out of the hole. And I have not experienced trauma like so many of the people that follow this show. So I can't even imagine, you know, uh, I can imagine the cocooning because it does have a, a comforting effect, but at some point you start to feel isolated and that's when things get a little scary. So COVID has been a very strange thing. You know, we can talk about that today if you like, but I have focused all of my attention on trying to think past it, not forward, in fact, let me start off with a really annoying comment off the beginning. <laughs> I'm a little tired of all these so-called experts who say they know what's going to happen after COVID. 
you, you couldn't possibly know what's going to happen after COVID because it's never happened before. And I've heard people, oh, the plague, we've had these viruses, we've had SARS. Okay, I understand why people would say that. But we're in uncharted territory. And the irony is, I actually just wrote this, I haven't published it yet, but I was on a trip and it occurred to me that um, I hadn't spoken for 565 days. And while it felt like 565 days, this is a week ago today, on Tuesday, and I was in Georgia, and yet it felt like yesterday. So I, I concluded in my own strange mind, we're all of us kind of living parallel lives, right? We're living the life that we portray to the public, and we're living the life that we're haunted by for some of us inside our head. And how we reconcile those two is the trick, and, and, and it's a hard one for some people. So I'm glad to be able to chat with you today about anything regarding our attitude, because that's really what it's all about. But it's deeper than that. Well, I've always seen you as, well, first of all, for the audience. <laughs> um, I saw you perform right in the beginning. It was probably 1989, if I remember right, yep. at Salisbury Composite High School in Sherd Park. And uh, watching you on the drums, and I remember how you did it. Everybody close your eyes. You know, and don't just look at the guy with no arms playing the drums. Yeah. Just listen, you know, and, and don't have the extra visual. And uh, and everybody did exactly as Alvin had instructed us. He was laying down the law. <laughs> and, um, and, and I remember I, I followed the instructions. I closed my eyes. I just listened to the, trum, to, to, to the drums. And then when you said, okay, now open your eyes. I'm watching you just flail on these drums, you know. Um, what an impression, but to you, you're always the no excuses guy to me mm. for, from my perspective, you know, yeah. um, and not from a no empathy, uh, kind of place, not at all. Right. But more from, you can do more than you think you can. Yeah. Your hill may be bigger. Yeah. You have these obstacles. I get it. Uh, that's just life for some people. Life is harder than others. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you were born with extra challenges, ahead of you and tough to imagine what that would be like right but you can overcome them it may be harder but you can overcome them and you've always been that guy to me Thanks. always my whole life and uh, i've probably referenced you uh, more times than i <laughs> than i can imagine so for you alvin what was the hardest part like the the hardest thing to overcome uh, in general, is there anything that jumps to your mind? Well, Mark, I, I, I want to make sure the audience knows that I was born without arms. And yeah. uh, that is an important part of the story. But the bigger part of the story, which people often don't think about, because why would they, is the connection to why. I think a lot of people, you know, Simon Sinek wrote a book, Start With Why, and everyone thought it was a great book. And frankly, I didn't really enjoy the book. I thought it was very simple. But that's me. Now, I'm not being critical because I know what a big following Simon Sinek has. He's a genius. My point is that the why does have an important element to it. So the why for me was a drug called thalidomide. But why that's important is because that set up its own stigma. People don't realize that folks are born all over the world without limbs every single day. It happens. It's hard to believe, isn't it? I was looking up something for some reason and... There was a statistic a few years ago, that's why I want to make sure it's not current, probably two, three years ago before COVID started, 650 people in the United States that year alone were born with missing arms, whether it be from the elbow down, whether it be disfigured. 
thalidomide mimicked that same that that idea of what the body can do to a, a growing fetus. It's it's in fact when babies are born healthy and normal, and we use the word miracle too lightly, we shouldn't use it too lightly because it is a miracle. Humanity is a humi- is, is a miracle. Think about it. the The idea that we can function at all is is really truly hard to believe. The fact of the matter is, though, my biggest thing I overcame was the era. Mm. That was what it was. What year were you born? Nineteen sixty. Nineteen sixty. They you, just, don't, you don't look it. Well, I'm, thanks. I'm not. I'm nineteen seventy. So that makeup. actually catches me off guard. <laughs> it's the makeup. Yeah. No, to be honest with you. Um, I am very healthy for a thalidomider, as we call ourselves. It's a weird name, thalidomider. In fact, as we approach It's an our, exclusive club. It is an exclusive club, although in Canada, we're losing people. And in the world, we're losing people. Uh, not quickly, but we have, uh, it appears as though less longevity because of what we put our bodies through, missing the limbs that we would require. And for the audience to understand the clarity of this, there isn't one kind of thalidomider. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with an Australian named Nick Virchik. Yes. And he, yeah, he's missing his arms and parts of his legs. He's not a thalidomider. That goes to show you that nature does that. But why it's important to understand the stigma is because of the attitude surrounding the era that we had no quality of life. So when you compliment me like you do, when you see what I can do, I look amazing. But the reality is I wasn't amazing. I'm, I'm still not amazing. I'm, I'm authentic. But the people that were amazing, which is obviously the story I've told thousands of times, I don't have to write a new story because the stories of the old really talk about the transition from being what was called in those days a crippled child with no future mm. to today a Hall of Fame speaker and, and author. And, and that's not bragging. That's saying, yes, we can. But that's why I talked about off the start. It's a mindset of attitude that for some people who struggle from mental health, it's almost insulting. Oh, just change your attitude or oh, just get over it. Oh, I had one guest on here and I, I won't name him, but okay. uh, he's kind of a big deal. And he hangs out with like, you know, John Travolta and, yeah. and that kind of line. And I had him on and, uh, and I was worried because I, I knew what was going to happen. So I'd set up, uh, set up uh, uh, softball questions, and he was, he's such a professional speaker. He, mm-hmm. he, could, he just knocks everyone out. Right. Just, they're just targets, right? Yeah. And, um, and when he said, you're just as happy as you choose to be, oh. I just like, oh, dear Lord. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, that, that is the problem. So, so let me give you my perfect example, okay? This, this will, I think, start our interview off in the right context because – what I also learned, as you learned in your life, people know your story, I was adopted. But the bigger part of the story is I was given up. The idea behind that resonates in many, many ways for everybody who is an adopted child. But for me, putting it in a very simple context, I'm not judging the people that gave birth to me. But isn't it interesting that they would even think about giving me away? So why would I want to grow up in a home like that? I grew up in a home that not were looking for a child. This was not a classic adoption in the sense that my family couldn't have children. They'd already raised their children. This was backwards. They were in their mid-50s. But they were compassionate, caring human beings in a small town in Saskatchewan called Yorkton. And they knew people who knew about this baby born and homeless. So Hilda Law basically came along and said, well, I'll take them home. Nobody else wants to. I'll take them home. We're not going to keep them. Well, and the- 
But they did. <laughs> one of the most um, interesting things, and, and this is one thing I've referenced from your book, when, uh-huh. when the doctor said to, uh, to your parents, he'll never walk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the guy, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, uh, God love them. Uh, got a lot of respect for doctors, but uh, they're not always right. No, and they go with the acknowledged research of the time. And I think we could fast forward to today, not Tuesday today, but, you know, this is where a lot of the problems with COVID have come across is we lose our faith in experts, especially cynics, right? Especially the ones that are really weird about all this. We won't talk about that unless you want to. But the reality is the doctors of the time were right with, with, with the information they had. Hmm. What makes my parents look like superhumans, though, is what they did. But I want to put this in context. You talk about walking. I didn't walk till I was two. Okay, And I, I remember this great story. I was speaking at an event wherever, and I've been doing this a long time. In fact, you mentioned uh, Sherwood Park 89. My first onstage event that I ever did in a professional capacity was 1981. So I've been at this a long time. I, I formed my own company in 88, just to give people context. Point is, when I was looking at all these talks that I've given and all these places that I've been, you know, it, it, it occurs to me that a lot of, a lot of uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Where was I going with that? I was talking about the, the original stories. Um, Sorry, help me out. Yeah, with this the, one, the, man. then then you bounced to uh, uh, you've been speaking since eighty one, but you got you turned it into a company in eighty eight. I think that was the sidebar, though. Yeah, that, well, what uh, was that I going to? I I can't believe I just had a brain fart. Oh, that's um, all right. But I I think what I was going to what I was going to go with was the idea that this um, this my parents back to mom and dad they had no idea what they were doing. Mm. They but they had made a them look, look like superheroes. So was I was doing a speech. That's what it was. And a yeah. lady came up to me afterwards, and she had her arms crossed. I got back, and uh, she looked cross to use an old word, upset. And that that's not common. People don't get upset with my talk unless they haven't healed themselves. Mm. There's a few people I've encountered that way. Fact is, she looked cross. So when everybody was done. She hung around and she said, I need to talk to you. Now, not, not to set your audience up because I don't want to set this up to be a big drama. She was setting me up. Yeah. I didn't realize it. She went on to talk very quickly. I'll make it a short story about a long version of hers. Essentially, they lived down the street from us when I was learning to walk. They were renting a house because her dad was in the military. They had a, a radar base, if people remember those, outside of Yorkton, Saskatchewan. And uh, she was on her front step playing with her dolls one day. She was eight years old. I was learning to walk. In those days, there was no trees or bushes separating the properties, but we lived in rural Saskatchewan, so it was literally one block of lawns, and I used the lawn to walk because I was falling a lot. Yeah. And she was on her doorstep and she said, I want to talk about your, the real mom that I met. You're a real mom. I want to talk about that. So she tells this story of how I spotted her on the doorstep and I come traipsing up to try to play with her dolls and I fall on my face and I start to cry and I've got a bloody lip. And she goes to pick me up and she says, and then this evil woman comes screaming around the corner, don't you touch him. And I'm like, what? Don't you touch him. What? How's he ever going to learn to get up if everyone keeps picking him up? I want to ask your audience a question. If you had a child without arms, would you feel comfy cozy watching that child fall on their face? Or would you even try to encourage them to walk in the first place? I have a belief system that my birth mom, fantastic human being, would have never pushed me to be who I am. 
She would have taken care of me. She would have loved me, but she never would have encouraged what Hilda Law encouraged. And by the way, folks, this is not a simple answer to your question, why me? There is no answer to the question, why me? You're born. Your life exists. You have things happen to you. Some are good. Some are bad. But at the end of the day, that's why this has become a bit insulting to some people because we, this hyperbole makes it sound, you know, oh, Oh, just be happy. Yeah, yeah, right. But ironically, our attitude controls our energy in our mind. And we are the only ones that are really in charge of ourselves at the end of the day. And that's what I also learned. Mom and dad could support me. I could have the schools educate me. But at the end of the day, Alvin Law needs to decide what that life is going to look like. It's a balance, isn't it, Alvin? It absolutely you is. mean. <clears throat> on one end, you have to be kind to yourself and you can't beat yourself up or uh, think that it's weak to ask for help. You can't think, uh, oh, I'm less than, I'm not really a man if I need help or if I need to talk to a psychologist or uh, if I need to take time for myself and look after myself. On the other hand, um, there's the, the extreme of, oh, just suck it up. Well, that's not right either because that's not true. Um, you can't just suck it up uh Every time, you know, sometimes you have to, and you, and you got a soldier on, but it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to not be okay. That is all right. And, um, balanced though, with what can you do though? Like, are, are you putting obstacles in front of your path that don't really need to be there? Are they actually in your head? You know, so it's, um, it, it's a balancing act in the last four or five years of therapy, uh, for it's about how long I've been in the system. Uh, that's exactly what you're trying to figure out. You know, how much of this is a legit impediment? How much is, um, like, where is the line? Don't shoot, you know, if you shoot too, fa- too, past, uh, too far past the line, which I tend to do, I say yes to things. Oh, yeah, I can do that. And then I can't. Oh, yeah, I can do that because I really think I can. But I can't. And then it falls apart. And so there's, there's all these things to, to consider. And at the end of the day, being kind to yourself, but also challenging yourself, challenging yourself with the idea that, yeah, I could fail, but if that potential for for failure isn't there, then you're not really challenging yourself. It's okay to fail because that's how, that's the only way you're going to find the line. Mark, I invented failure. (laughs) Think about, honest to God, 1960, I was born, the world was not set up for a person like me. No. I had to fail at everything. You know, it's stupid the things you remember, isn't it? When your brain kicks into a little memory claw. I remember Frisbees. I remember when they first came out. There was no YouTube guide to throw a Frisbee. So you can figure it out how to put it in your hand, you know. And I, what I learned was you got to make the thing spin so it flies. I mean, duh. But how do you make a thing spin when you don't have the ankle, when the don't have the wrist action? Yeah. So I had to figure it out. I remember it taking me days to make my brand new frisbee in the '60s fly. But when I did, oh my god, it was the and I still love playing frisbee to this day. I mean, the idea that there's a game called frisbee golf. If somebody (laughs) would have told me that when I was a kid, I would have thought they were nuts. I should have gone pro. (laughs) I can throw a frisbee a hundred yards. I've done it. No. Yeah. Well, you got me beat, Albert. I've done it. And, And you know, to be honest with you, that was all part of the understanding. Yes, I'm going to have to fail. I want to throw a curveball at your audience, okay? I think the problem is we have this idea, and COVID has unfortunately pushed it to the forefront of our minds, this idea of normal. You know, we've, it's, it's been hijacked, the new normal. Pfft. What's the old normal? 
I'm normal. I was born without arms, okay? I met in my youth, uh, which was a profound thing for me, somebody who actually lost their arms, I'll leave out the gory details, in a hay baling accident, okay? Name's Murray Bedell, lives in Fort Capel, Saskatchewan. Murray Bedell was a farmer. Murray Bedell understood the dangers of farming. The fact that he had an accident that took his arms was not a pleasant thing. So I want to ask you about this. This is where I don't know. I didn't have trauma. I was born this way. Yeah, I don't, didn't have don't, any, don't, don't know any other way. Don't know any other way. There wasn't a moment in time where I had to confront the monster. I understand the idea behind that monster by knowing people like Murray, by knowing people like Mike Buckingham, a friend of mine from years and years ago. I haven't seen Mike forever, it seems, but his name well, occurs to there's me. There's an element of loss yeah. with, with the people that you're talking yeah. about, right? And with that loss is grief, and that's the extra Absolutely. obstacle to, to overcome. Mm-hmm. I'm not the man I was. right? But, uh, but that's where it's so powerful, the, the idea of peer support, right? Oh. Um, I, <laughs> I've told the story on the show several times. But when I started with the military peer support groups, uh, I was like, oh, well, you know, what are we going to do? Hold hands and sing Kumbaya? <laughs> I mean, fuck off. <laughs> I've used that one in my speech. <laughs> it, you know, it, um, just not really, um, I, but I didn't get it, you know. But at the end of the day, going back to the beginning of our conversation about connection, um, an operational stress injury or any sort of uh, like depression, any of the symptoms of PTSD, which is depression, anxiety, all these things, they separate you from people. They, they make you feel disconnected from yourself, from others, from your family, from those that you love most. That sense of disconnection is the pain. That is the injury, is the disconnection. That's, that's the manifestation of those injuries. Mm-hmm. So when you lose your arms in in an accident or your legs or, or, or whatever. And now you are physically a different human being having that uh, peer support. Get, it gives you that sense of connection. I'm not alone. Yes. You know, and it, it's also, uh, you hear your story through somebody else. Cause we'll all articulate our story differently. You know, you'll talk about uh, being adip- uh, adopted different mm-hmm. than I will talk yes. about being adopted because uh, we had a different experience. But where there is crossover, maybe I say it in a way using metaphors that you've never thought of and vice versa. So to hear it through your eyes, through, through your experience, it, I'm going to have a different uh, perspective. And I'm like, thank you for telling my story. I, I, it was in my head, but I couldn't say it. And that's what peer support groups do. They make you know that you're not alone. And they also help you, like, how do I get out of this hole? Mm-hmm. I'm in this hole. Uh, you've been, you're, you're already halfway out of it. I'm still at the bottom. How did you get there? And yeah. how is that working for you? And if that doesn't work, then talk to somebody else who's halfway out of the hole or all the way out of the hole. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because like different flavors of ice cream, you know, one isn't uh, uh, for, for everybody. So not everybody likes double chocolate chip. And while somebody might be affected by a minor trauma, others may be able to just throw that aside. No problem. It takes a major trauma. Who knows? That's what I mean. Each one of us is our own individual normal. Well, we, I talk about it a lot, the trauma Olympics, but it has been mm-hmm. a while since I've mentioned it. So, um, Everything is relative. So 
com- doing comparative traumas, like mine's bigger than yours or mine is smaller smaller than yours, you know, uh, that's not great in the shower <laughs> or when it comes to trauma. Either way, and um, because I'm not you and you're not me. Uh, when I was on tour um, uh, in a war, uh, there's 2,000 of us there, give or take, on that tour. So there's 2,000 different tours. Even the uh, guys like Ed Barton, who was my roommate for uh, for a good chunk of it, right? And we were on the same patrols. We were shoulder to shoulder uh, in the same town, looking at the same uh, buildings. Doesn't mean we had the same impact, you know. And there was one particular event. Uh, actually, a few events that we shared. And uh, like when the armored personnel carrier almost went off the bridge, it would have been the largest one-time death in peacekeeping history, right? There's about eight people in a carrier, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, all, it was literally the hand of God came down and put us back on the bridge. It was about a 150-foot drop. Wow. We really should be dead. But we're not. And um, th- that experience, there's, there was eight of us in that carrier. There's eight different experiences for, for what that was and what that means to them individually and how that impacted them, if at all. You know? Yeah, that's, that's another one too, isn't it? Yeah. I, I remember... This is kind of a strange segue to your story, but um, nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine, around the time that you would have seen me, I was also getting involved. Unknowns to me, uh, I had a, an attraction to certain individuals to carry the banner of disability awareness and advocacy, mm. and I'm pretty sure most of your audience would know Rick Hansen. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm not name dropping, but I'm really good friends with Rick Hansen, and I've known him ever since his tour. I met him actually in Regina. Man in motion. Yeah, bet when I uh, when I was the MC for the provincial government welcome to Saskatchewan uh, on the way when he was in his wheelchair. He wasn't even married to Amanda yet. This was all really new. The point is that Rick had quite the attitude even then. He liked my attitude, so he wanted to know if I'd like to be on his National Access Awareness Week organizing committee, which now National Access Awareness Week has been around for decades. When I joined that group, this is going back a ways, and this is an important element of the story too. I want to keep talking about the past, but I've seen things change incrementally, and that's really what does, period. Things change slowly. But I'm on this committee and one of the people on the committee was uh, paralyzed from the neck down in a, in a car accident. He had a real negative attitude. He had a real chip on his shoulder. He was very aggressive and very angry. And I'm not. And at one meeting, we were getting into a heated discussion about the silliest thing, and that is they wanted to call it National Access Awareness Week for Disabled Persons versus Persons with a Disability. Now, it turns out, ironically, that guy, don't remember his name, was probably right. He thought you put the person before the disability, as if semantics mattered. It sure mattered to him. I argued the fact that it didn't matter because at this point, people could use the term disabled person. We want to connect the dots. We got into a heated debate, at which point he lost his temper, screamed across the table at me, what the hell do you know about being disabled anyway? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, everything's relative, it I is. suppose. It is, but you see, I now know not that moment in time because I was shocked, but where he was coming from, Mark, was he could not fathom that having no arms was as difficult as being paralyzed from the neck down in a wheelchair. 
Well, it probably isn't, but you're comparing fish to, to chickens, right? It, the, they both breathe, but different air. Yours is still valid. Sure. And I think that's where I can be annoying to other people like me, <laughs> right? Not everybody that has no arms plays the drums with their feet. Yeah. So what is that for me? You know, we were in a, uh, if you want to check out a video, folks, sometimes check out a video called The Real Superhumans. It was a video that was done to promote the Rio 2016 Paralympics. It was filmed in England, and it is a stunning, stunning video. And uh, it actually ended up getting me national CBC news coverage because I'm Canadian, and I was in this international video. It was huge. So, you know, I end up being very proud of this. I'm being interviewed. And then the next thing I know, there's a columnist in the Ottawa Citizen who has basically taken this video and called it, ready audience, disability pornography. Because all of the people in the video are really overachievers. They're athletes, they're musicians, they're people. There's a guy doing, you know, uh, amazing things, shooting a bow and arrow with his feet. People say, do you shoot a bow and arrow? No, I play the drums. My point is that I challenged this woman, okay? And we ended up getting interviewed again on CBC National Radio, CBC Radio. And she lost bad because her point of view was that I was misrepresenting disability. That disability is negative, that it's shallow, that it hurts, that you can't succeed, you can't live, you can't enjoy your life. It was painting this bleak picture. Okay, does that exist? You bet. But the point was, I'm not trying to discount that. I'm simply saying this is what I've done. Not everybody can follow the same roadmap. And that's the irony of PTSD, isn't it? Your story that you're sharing right there, Alvin... It's the same, though, with overcoming anything. Yep. I call it crab bucket theory. And so you know the story of the crab bucket. Well, refresh my memory, because I think I've heard this, but I want to make sure we're on the same page. You bet. Um, she was a crab pulling you back into the bucket, right? So the, the young boy goes out on the fishing boat for the first time. His dad uh, says, your job on this fishing boat today is just to watch that bucket. Dad, that's what? what? <laughs> just just watch the bucket, okay? And the bucket fills up with crabs. And, um, and uh, keep watching that bucket. I'll explain why later. And uh, at the end of the day, they get back to the shore. So, son, what did you see? And he goes, well, actually, it's a bit weird, but it was interesting. Um, so there would be half a dozen crabs in the bucket. And, uh, of course, if you're in the bucket, the next stop is the, is the stove. So it's, it's probably not a good place to be. And uh, every now and then, one of the crabs would try to crawl out of that bucket because they didn't want to get cooked. They wanted to go back to the ocean. Mm. Um, and just as it was at the top, another crab would reach up and the asshole would grab him <laughs> and pull him back into the bucket. And, um, and, and that will happen every time. Every time you're shining, every time you're overcoming an obstacle, every time you're doing something that other people don't think that they can do, mm. they're going to try to pull you back in the damn bucket. I noticed it when I wrote my first book. That's mm. when you and I first started to connect. And um, uh, when I started to write the first book, there was a few cheerleaders, and, and God bless them. And like, hey, great, you know, that's, that's a lot of work to write a book. It and, is. Especially with your toes. It is. It <laughs> that's is. Right, that's right. But uh, it, it is a lot of work to write a book. And mine's about the same size as yours. And um, uh, so it, it's a lot of work, right? It took two years to get it to publish. Uh, all the processes that you have to do. 
But then there's the other type of person that, <laughs> who are you? This is said to me at a book signing once. Who are you to write a book like this? Because mm. it was a similar book to yours, you know, um, personal development book. Yeah. Who are you to write a book like this? And I just smiled. I didn't know about crabs, uh, crab buckets at the time, but, uh, but I recognized what it was, is that when your light is starting to shine, when you're trying to crawl out of that bucket, those that are not comfortable crawling out of the bucket don't want to see you succeed. They d- and uh, so they'll pull you back in or they'll tell stories about you or you'll either have the cheerleaders or the detractors. There doesn't seem to be much in between, you know, and, and that's, that, 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 that is what was happening with you. It's like, look, yeah, this disability sucks. You know, if that's even the right word anymore, fuck, who knows? That is the problem is uh, <laughs> I'm giggling because I have this, this picture in my head about what you said at the very beginning of this interview, all right? People remember me. They largely remember the guy who plays the drums with his feet. That's the one that sticks with them, okay? I think the problem that, and I love your story about the crab. That I, I know, I remember it now exactly, and, and it, it's yeah. a great example because that's the point. I'm actually researching. <laughs> I'm laughing again because I can't believe I'm finally writing the follow-up to my first book, which, by the way, came out in you. 2007. That's yeah. how old it is. There's a reason for all this. And the simple answer is that I'm a speaker with a book, not an author who writes books and speaks. Yeah. There is a difference. Really. It's, a, it's well written, though. Oh, Alan. thanks. It's simple. And that's the way it, it was. It but yeah. in researching this next book, I'm trying to give it a little more relevance in terms of my age. I'm 61 now. Um, the working title of the book, by the way, I came to the conclusion that I can't write another Alvin's Laws like my first book. Uh, it would be easy because I would be sort of mimicking the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, which, by the way, not to disparage Mark and Jack, and I do I do know both of them, Mark Victor Hansen and Jack Canfield. Name drop. Name drop. <laughs> um, I, I actually met them through NSA, the National Speakers Association in the United States, who have annual conventions. Yeah. And I, I do. I travel in some pretty lofty circles that I didn't pursue. It just happened that way. I mean, I had coffee with Zig Ziglar before he died. That yeah. still stays in my head of what a remarkable man he was. Anyway, Jack and Mark did not write the chicken soup for the soul. Mm-hmm. Everybody else did. And they simply compiled it. Genius. However, Jack Canfield has a great book called Success Principles. A lot of people don't know about that. I have a copy from him signed to me because of, again, circumstance. One thing led to another, led to another. But here's the part of the story I want to bring up. Jack Canfield is a massively successful, rich author. Well, the Mark and Jack are, uh, it's a world record holder. So they're, they're in yeah. the Guinness book for the best-selling, the only book that's sold or... <laughs> Of course, it's a whole series. It's yeah. chicken soup for bloody yeah. everything. Yeah, for chickens. Chip, 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 yeah. Chicken soup for your dog. <laughs> That's like. right. But anyway, Jack wrote this book called Success Principles. Okay? So I'm in England, not name dropping again, but it's one of the countries that I work in regularly with chief executive officers have these mastermind groups. They're, they originally was called the Association of Chief Executives in England. It's now called Vistage, which is a kind of a training company, etc. Except what's really funny is... Um, these were small groups of people that intimidated the crap out of me. 
right? I have a broadcasting diploma from Mount Royal College, now MRU, right? These are people with master's degrees in business. They're successful. They're accomplished. And I'm in there now talking to them. And what am I going to talk about? Well, I just talk about my life. One of the CEOs at one of these events that I spoke at, we were having dinner afterwards, and he goes, have you heard about um, ERO? I went, what's that? He goes, you've never heard of it. I went, nope. Come on, you're kidding me. You're living ERO. I went, okay, you're going to have to let me in on this joke because I have no idea what you're talking about. He says, you haven't read Jack Canfield's book, Success Principles? I went, nope. This was before I met Jack for the second time and he signed my book. And uh, I said, tell me about it. So this is the formula, Mark. ERO, it's so simple. E stands for event. R stands for reaction or response. And O stands for outcome. Event plus or minus reaction equals outcome. So if you attach it even one more bit to it, if we have a negative reaction to an event, no matter what that event is, now this is where it gets a little tricky because you're not going to have a positive reaction if you watch a bunch of your friends blow up in combat. That's not the point. But the outcome is affected by how you react to the moment, not the moment of the trauma, but the moment of the idea. So for me, if that makes any sense, by having a positive reaction to a negative event, having no arms, it simply weighs your favor better towards the energy you need to overcome it. That's what I've done. I'm not saying your audience can do this if they've experienced trauma. I'm not sure what you did. All I know is if I would mope around, curse God, you know, curse the world, say this was, I, I, my life sucks, what do you get? you get more of that. Even if we need to fake it till we make it, that's what I find we sometimes need to do is put on the brave, happy face because it changes our own personal energy. When people meet me, yeah, they remember the drums, but they remember something else. They remember, God, that was a nice guy. Or God, he seemed so positive. Or God, it inspired really? Everybody me. said you were a total prick. Yeah, well, I could have been. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and I agree, if, if you're in a military and you experienced the trauma you did, you could be easily passed away or passed off as being a prick. Because, of course, look what that person saw. But how can you live like that? That's the bigger question. I break it down into, and I use this word again and again, mindfulness. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, with mindfulness, that is the path to self-awareness. The path to self-awareness increases your situational awareness, like how you affect others, uh, how you affect a room. And it really is broken down to, and how I break it down into my book is constructive versus destructive thinking. You know, it's, uh, it, it's of all the things to be attacked, I've heard positive thinking being attacked because it's misunderstood. Uh, attacked as uh, just Pollyanna yes. woo-woo. Uh, no, <laughs> it's constructive or destructive. Is this serving you or is this not serving you? And the mindfulness is, is, is the idea of, okay, let's take a step back here. What are my thoughts? What are my reactions? How am I looking at this? Like, how am I doing this? And is there maybe a more constructive way to do it? And that is where the mindfulness piece comes in and if you're immersing yourself in books like your book alvin's laws for life the five steps to successfully overcome anything um or my book um uh, or any of these books you know um 
if you say, yeah, I already know that stuff, well, are you practicing it? Yes. Because if you're not practicing it, then you may be aware of this stuff. But if you knew it, you'd do it. So here's a real easy one for everybody, okay? (laughs) You mentioned um, woo-woo. So I'm married to one of those. I'm married to Darlene. Darlene and I met in 1991. I was a single dad to a five-year-old, and I was a single dad to a five-year-old. He was living with me and everything, and I was trying to travel and take him with me and ditch him with my parents if I could one occasion if I'm away for a week or more. I met Darlene, and we became a couple, and the point is that she was kind of, as I called it, hiding in this closet of woo-woo because she did things that were woo-woo, like read tarot cards, or she was into getting her palm read, or she was into going into these psychics or these sorts of things. And we stereotype those people, and that's fine. Some of them are a bit odd. There's no question about it. But for me, what happened was she took me on this journey. And there's two little bits I want to talk about. And the first little bit is what I remember explicitly. We're in Madison, Wisconsin, and I'm speaking for some schools, and we have a day off. And Madison, Wisconsin is a very liberal city. Most people would not know that. It was actually a lot of history in Madison, Wisconsin during the 70s protests, okay? So we're walking down the street and this big sign says, and I hope the audience takes this with the right grain of thought, lesbian bookstore. And I, I'd never seen a sign that said lesbian bookstore. So we walked in because we had to see what a lesbian bookstore looked like. Well, it didn't look like what I thought it was going to look like. In fact, what does a lesbian look like? We'll leave that one alone. But you walk in and it was just, it was woo-woo. And I bought my first woo-woo book called The Tao, T-A-O, of Pooh, P-O-O-H. Now, if you don't know what that is, you're nodding, yes, Tao of Pooh. Pooh, of course, is Winnie the Pooh. And this author, I can't remember the name of the author, I apologize, but basically says, I don't know if this was intentional, but every character in the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh cartoons or the stories or the book, each represent a segment of society. And that's what the book was about. Eeyore is the slow complainer, the life is... And all of the characters represent a segment of our society's mindset. Probably the one that they, when they did the personality tests, I've never done that in my speeches, right? But everybody is a color or whatever. Any of those old or new tests, they're relevant. But my point is this. When I started reading about Tao, it changed my way of looking at woo-woo. And the second part of the story is one of the things that came out of that happened in here in Calgary. I'm driving years ago. We're probably talking 15, 16, maybe 17 years ago in this big, beautiful city. And I come across this car at the intersection next to me, and it's my dream car. There's a guy sitting in an Aston Martin, and he's just loving his life. You can see it. And I said under my breath, I hope the bastard hits a tree and dies. My wife said, what did you just say? I said, what do you mean? That was not for you to hear. She goes, did you say you hope that bastard hits a tree and dies? I said, well, look at the little smug bastard. He's sitting there and he's, he's got his little alligator shirt on and his Oakleys and he's listening to the tunes and he's, he's driving my car, God damn it. And my wife said, you should be happy for him. <laughs> and I looked at her and said, are, are you kidding me? Why should I be happy for that? She goes, you don't understand sympathetic joy, do you? I'd never heard of sympathetic joy. If your audience has never heard of sympathetic joy, it's it, real simple. Be happy for the guy in the Aston Martin. It's the opposite of jealousy. It's the opposite. And it feeds into the story about books. Don't 
be offended by a book somebody wrote because you don't like the words. Respect them for the fact they did it. And then, here's the clue, write your own. Everybody's got a book in a mark. It doesn't have to be monumental, a New York Times bestseller, but it's the act of writing it. And for PTSD, I don't know the science, I don't know the health, but I think it has a way, because it sure did for me, of putting everything in perspective. So when I'm writing a story about the hospitals I used to go to, I used to go away to hospitals sometimes six weeks at a time when I was five, six, seven years old, no choice, to get artificial arms. You know, it's funny, the other day, my wife, I don't want to bring this up because I'm going to get in hot water, but I got to give you the comparison. We have been inundated with reconciliation with our First Nations communities. I get it, but it's been inundated. There's been so much talk about it, and I don't want to talk about it right now unless you want to talk about it. I've been to over 100 First Nations communities in my life speaking, so I've been there. I know what it's like. It's terrible for some of them. Residential schools, terrible. Finding those graves this summer, terrible. All terrible. But my point is, we can all pick something terrible from our past. But if that's where we dwell, we never go anywhere. We're too busy carrying the weight of the negativity, and it basically is like putting thousands of pounds of pressure right on us. How can we be liberated with that kind of anger? So a book can be very therapeutic writing. You're right. Um, There's a couple of main points there. You know, uh, first, just talk about the therapy of writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's often encouraged to be doing journaling, to to partake in journaling on a regular basis every day. Because the bag of cats that can be our brain sometimes, oh. when you take it out and, and you just make some bullet points and you put, uh, get it out of your head and, and onto the paper, that makes a big, big difference. And it just organizes it. Instead of just being this mess of chaos, it gives you control over what's going on in your head. And the act of writing, say, your life story or writing about an event that you were a part of or a tour duty that you did maybe, just the physical act of writing it, it helps you take control of it and also process what actually was happening at that time. Now, back to the beginning of our conversation and that delicate balance, mm-hmm. you know, that that's the same thing with, with First Nations people. Of yeah. course, you have to acknowledge the past. Of course you do. And when that past has never been properly acknowledged, which really it hasn't, um, it, is, it is tough to move forward. It is tough to heal when people are telling you to just fucking get over it. Yeah, and that's, an, that's such an insult. It's incredible. It's terrible. It is terrible. Right. Um, at the same time, as you said, you can't suck and blow at the same time. That's not what you said. I'm paraphrasing. No, but that's a great saying. But you can't suck and blow at the the same time. Last night, um, it's been a rough four months for, for Murky Poo over here. Oh. And, uh, to the point, and and I can say it now, um, uh, there, I had a suicide attempt in July. Oh my. First, first, hopefully last, I'm sure it will be the last. I think I've figured it out, but that's the level of, uh, big events that have been happening since about April. And it was just too much. And my brain broke. So, I had a point. I had a point. <laughs> I was going somewhere with that. No, uh, yeah, no, and, and you know, I want to. I want your audience to to look at Mark right now and realize that what he just said is a moment of great pain, yeah. isn't it? 
And I know I, I'm not an expert on this subject. Um, I can't even understand what would take someone to the point of that reality. All right. Um, I want to talk about something real strange. You know, maybe it'll get you back on track to what you were going to talk yeah, about. Sure. Um, I, I met some very interesting people. You nailed it, right? Um, 2018, uh, actually 19, just before COVID kicked into gear, I got involved with a, a, an organization um, called the Challenged Athletes Foundation in the United States. Probably don't know what that is. The Challenged Athletes Foundation was a charity created by three really rich businessmen in San Diego and Robin Williams, the comedian. They met in a party area for the Tour de France because Robin Williams was really into the Tour de France, okay? And uh, he just went. He was always there. He actually cycled himself, and these they were all sitting around, and to be quite blunt, they were all getting just loaded, and they came up with this idea. 25, well, be now 27 years ago, they created this organization. So they brought me in to do a fundraiser that they were doing for this organization based on that 2016 Rio Paralympics video called The Real Superhumans. In fact, let's just sidebar for one second. The Real Superhumans was a big, big surprise to the audience watching it. How can you call a disabled person superhuman? If I may draw an absolutely respectful, intelligent, and meaningful dialogue line, all of you that have PTSD are also superhuman because you're having to overcome things that the average everyday human being does not have to overcome. So when we, you talked about it before, suck and blow, okay? The point of the story is I got to meet Robin Williams' daughter. And it was weird. She was at the event in New York. And we start chatting. And her line was, she would have loved you. Because, you know, Robin Williams' daughter saw me do my thing, play my drums, say some words. And I, I said, why would he have loved me? And he said, she said, because Robin was attracted to fucked up people. Pardon my grammar, but I heard you use it. And, and I said, oh, that kind of shook me back a little bit. She actually used those words. And I said, what do you mean? I'm not effed up. She goes, oh, look at you. Everybody would look at you and think you're just fucked up. But yet, look at you. You've taken it and you've turned it around. My dad would have loved you, she said. And I said, you must miss him. And she said, I do miss him. And I didn't want to get into why, because we all know he took his own life. But I said, can I just ask you something? How hard was it for your dad to be that person all the time? And she looked at me and got a tear in her eye, and she said, you know, I'll never understand it, but what I do know is he'd had enough. And that sounds glib to say that. that that's not meant to sound glib. But when it comes to that thing that you went through, Mark, I can't even imagine what would have taken you to that point. Thank God you didn't. But we can't judge people that choose that way out because we do not know what their lives are like. We do not know the pain they're going through. We don't know the noise in their minds, that they never get calm, that they're never quiet, that they're never just being. And I think that's what that mindfulness is you're talking about. We can take our, I've had to do this. I've had to find my place in the world where it gets quiet and I can think and I can contemplate, and I can look at my life and go, you know what? There will never be an answer as to why I was born without arms, but I only get one. And if I choose to live it the way that I can, I guess I win. What do you do to get over something like that, Mark? I mean, I'm turning the interview around to you now, because what did you do that you got away from? You're here, and July happened. Is that, I hope it feels like a long time ago, because these things happen to good people. Well, 
and as bizarre as this might sound, I'm actually grateful that that event happened because I didn't understand it either until it happened, right? So for me, I've struggled with uh, thoughts of suicide, fantasies of suicide. Fantasy is a terrible word, but uh, plagued by rolling it over and over and over and over again in my head, nine ways to Sunday. Um, People say, do you have a plan? I just chuckle. I'm like, pick one. (laughs) <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Know, I've got a dozen plans, but I've got it narrowed down to it because I've imagined it so many times. Don't want to imagine it. It just it's in there. It it it's in there and yeah. getting rid of it is a son of a bitch. Um but Is it because of the original trauma or is it more than that? I, I think it's it's cumulative. Yeah. You know, I, and I think it's just a coping mechanism of um of the brain. Like I know several people that can't remember an entire tour of duty. Wow. Like the whole freaking thing, they cannot remember it. It's just the way that their, their, their mind blocks it out, right? Um, the brain does odd things. Now, one of the most gory things I ever saw, we don't do war porn on the show, um, but I saw a torso once, just the torso. No head, no arms, no legs, just a torso. And it was probably about 13 years old. Best mm. guess. Wow. You know, uh, of a boy, mm-hmm. uh, charred and burnt. And that wasn't the bad part. The bad part was a father and, because we're in a garbage dump, so that made it bad. And um, a father and son were walking by because they're in the garbage dump looking for food because they're starving. And they're looking for anything that could maybe be salvaged as food or maybe a piece of metal that they can use and, and convert into something. And the two of them paused at this torso and just observed it, like I had just a few minutes uh, before, like like right there, as close as we are together, just staring at it, trying to make make sense of it. Well, I know that it was a torso, because the fellow that was uh, with me, it shook him to this day, right? And um, But what my brain did in that moment was it flipped it, mm. and I saw a pig. Oh, my. It wasn't a fucking pig. Mm. Jeez. Right, but your brain will do that. It will compensate. It will flip, and and it will do weird things. And uh, so, this last few months, all the things that uh, were going on, uh, in my mind, big things. And uh, my brain got to a point where it broke, and I had a disassociative episode. So I had no intention whatsoever of taking my life, none. Mm. Um, but the screaming of the of the devil on one shoulder and the right. and and the angel on the other started, and um, all of a sudden I couldn't hear the angel anymore, and that has never happened before. Wow! I could always hear both of them, you know, and um, with that internal struggle that you see in the cartoons, and, uh, but I experienced it in a very real way. But I couldn't hear it anymore, and the other voice won, and the voice wasn't saying "Take your life," I can't do this anymore. Was saying, hey, you know what would be cool? It'd be totally cool if you took that knife and just opened up that wrist. Oh my gosh. It'd be so fucking cool. You know, imagine that sting, kind of like getting a tattoo. It'd be cool, man. Try it, see what it's like. Wow. And I did. Wow. And I tried. And um, that's why I wear this wristband to to protect myself. So how did you you not die? Um, The skin wouldn't break. Ah. Because that knife that is normally razor sharp, I was using it uh, earlier in the day to cut up cardboard boxes. And I cut up a lot of the cardboard boxes. 
but I still should have been able to pierce the skin. I believe a miracle happened. Mm. Either that or my subconscious was somehow blocking me because I was leaning into it. Like I was trying and, uh, and it wouldn't go. It would not break the skin. And so it's either my subconscious, which is the most likely and the most logical, that was somehow blocking me from actually doing it because it wasn't that dull. Like it should have worked. Yeah. At, um, uh, but the experience of it though, was that my, my skin was impenetrable is what it felt like. Cause I was, I was trying and it wouldn't go. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? But, uh, and I didn't even realize that, th- that I didn't connect the dots. Uh, I was on a motor- little motorcycle ride. I was trying to clear my head cause I uh, just got a text from somebody that really was upsetting and so that was why I was on the motorbike, to try to go clear my head. But when I'm sitting in this field, and it's a beautiful mountain view, and I, and I went for it, uh, the, the ride home from that was about half an hour in before I went, wait a second, holy shit, what just happened? <laughs> wow. So I didn't even know that that's what I was doing. So you're so wise to say that you can't judge, because you can't. You can't say, oh, that's a coward's way out you don't know what that person's going through. And like my brain wasn't working. My brain wasn't saying, kill yourself. My brain was saying, Hey, you no, know, it'd be cool. This would be so cool. I sat in my cottage in July and crystal Lake uh, is a beautiful lake in Saskatchewan. And I had um, a couple of events take place that were very, very positive. Uh, the quick version is two friends, one that I had not seen for 40 years wow. regularly. Uh, I'd run into her a couple of times here in Calgary, but she used to come out to our cottage, uh, to our lake, where she, her family rented a place. Um, we were friends as teenagers. She was profoundly important in my life at the time because, as you spoke of, I think it slipped out a couple of times that you weren't intentionally saying it, but guys and masculinity – uh, PTSD affects women too, but I want to talk about the guy thing for a minute because this is profound. The idea, this woman, by the way, uh, was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in, in my entire life. She would actually go on to be um, a cheerleader in the, in the Canadian Football League. She went on to become Miss Canada. I'm leaving her name out just for respect of her privacy, but she sends me a text out of the blue saying, I want to come to Crystal Lake for a visit. And in the same day, I got another text from a friend of mine who was my teenage idol. I loved this guy at the lake. He was the best water skier ever. And right now in life, he's just finishing off battling prostate cancer, and he's winning. So he decides, because he couldn't come last year because of COVID, he wants to come out for a surprise visit to come to the lake. Well, as it turned out, the guy who's coming and the gal who's coming had a relationship when they were 17 years old at the lake, and I was witness to their relationship. Okay. And I was so jealous because she was hot and he was hot and I'm not, I'm ugly. I'm a 17 year old without any goddamn arms. And I got acne and I got bad hair and I got braces and my name is Alvin. I mean, my God, all these things. Right. And, and they came out to the lake to visit and and they were both there back to back. We have a guest cottage. They came out and that's what lifted my depression. I'm not comparing notes here, Mark, because I was not suicidal, but it wasn't until they came out to the lake that I realized what depression was. I love the fact we can swear on here because I use this word on occasion when it fits. Depression is fucking stupid. 
I'm looking at my life. I'm going, I'm married to a beautiful woman. I've got an adult son who's doing well. I've got a dog who loves me. I've got a cottage on a lake. I've got a home in Calgary. I've traveled the world. I've seen and done things that are incredible. God, how can I be depressed? Because you don't freaking choose it. When you, um, uh, perfect, because you just create, gave me the segues. The thing that I lost, I remembered about 10 minutes ago, and now you just segued me into it. Go. Oh. So because of these big events, one of the big events, uh, I couldn't sleep last night. You know, part of it was like, oh, man, this going to be sitting down with Alvin. That's so great. But there was also this negative thing. It was coming, I was like, God damn it. I thought I was, oh, like, I thought that I had processed this, but ah, no, still angry. Wow. Still angry, still sad, still betrayed, still bewildered that uh, anybody could do this to me and uh so it's still fresh unfortunately but it's because i have to correspond with this person until we get a couple of things sorted out um but so i couldn't sleep and i thought well this is gonna suck i'm gonna be a bag of hammers for alvin tomorrow and and then i show up late that was helpful yeah that was helpful (laughs) but um uh, what i discovered last night though uh was reminding myself of a trick which you just explained Gratitude. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this, uh, and I'll tell you what it was after. You won't believe it. But um, this unbelievable betrayal that happened to me recently that, um, like, it's just mind-bending, right? So I'm obsessed with it last night. And, but I think, whoa, 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 pump the brakes here. Yeah. And let's focus on what are we grateful for. So I started going through it. I'm grateful for my two awesome kids. I'm grateful for my ex-wife, believe it or not, because uh, we, we have a, re, a, a good, functional, working relationship. I'm grateful for that because I know so many fathers that do not. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for my wife. I'm grateful for my dog. I'm grateful for my stepkids. I'm, I'm grateful for um, so many things. And I would just go through, I'm grateful for this, I'm grateful for that. And thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm grateful for, then I was able to sleep. Mm. Because I changed the, the, the neural pathway of, of where my brain was going. My brain was going to tragedy because I had to yesterday interact with this fellow. Mm. Um, I was like, okay, well, that messes me up. <laughs> so when I am forced, and, until we've been able to part ways completely, uh, when I'm forced to, to do that, and that's where the mindfulness, okay, I know I'm going to have to interact with this person. I know it messes me up. I'm not over it. So I'm going to have to work before do the interaction, and then immediately after, do the work after to get myself right. Otherwise, I will be spinning in that negative feedback loop. It would go on for a week (laughs) if I didn't address it. But most people don't know how. The power of gratitude is fantastic. If you're having trouble sleeping because you're worried about this, worried about that, flip it to gratitude and focus only on the things you're grateful for. It's much easier to sleep. And let's be honest, Mark, there's, there's real stress and it, and it really exacerbated, there's an expensive word, in 2018 when all of this, uh, you know, 2020 when all this stupidity started. I, I, 2018 was a slip up because that was the last time that I was really, really busy, busy, busy. And, and, and when I think of COVID, I lost, what, 65 speaking engagements in three days? I mean, you're not going to look at that and go, that's awesome. I'm not going to work for an entire 18 months. Woohoo! Aren't I lucky? Of course, that's stupid. That's not gratitude. That's the negative thinking. That's, you know, here I am now, back in play. Already been to Georgia last week, going to Los Angeles on Sunday. I'm going to be there all week. My point is not 
this is not simple. You mentioned it a couple of times, and I'm curious about this, because I think the key to all of this is if you can't figure this out, the biggest thing you can do is ask for help. That's so predictable, Alvin, isn't it? It is, Alvin. It is very predictable. But you hit the nail on the head. Isn't it ironic that so many people, especially military, especially men, have the machismo problem? You know, I want to throw an idea at your audience. This is for the machismo folks out there, okay? This is a story, a real quick one, but again, goes back to something profound in my life. My mom had to wipe my ass till I was 16 years old. Let's let that sink in just for a minute, boys. Girls too, but boys for sure. How would you feel as an adolescent growing up and wanting to be a stud, because a lot of you guys are studs, that your mom had to wipe your ass. How would that work for your self-esteem as an adolescent? It wasn't working well for me. I was amazing. Look at him, Alvin. Alvin's amazing. He plays the drums, the piano, and the trombone with his feet. That's amazing. And his mom has to wipe his ass. How do you see the good in that outweighing all of the crap? Pardon the pun. I'm in the Yorkton Regional High School in the fall of 1977 having lunch with my buddy Doug. Doug says to me, how was your summer? I said, it was excellent, man. I learned to do a new skill. And he goes, what's that? I said, wipe my ass. He goes, what? I said, I didn't share this with you, buddy, but my mom had to wipe my ass. And he goes, that explains why your mom always comes to school to take you to the bathroom. I said, yeah, we were trying to keep that secret. He goes, does that really happen? Your mom takes you to the bathroom? Yeah. Your mom goes into the bathroom and... Man, he just, she used to wipe your ass in school. I'm, that thought's never going to leave my brain. And I went, hey, man, let's change the subject. He goes, no, we've got to talk about this. So you, you learn to wipe your ass, but you still can't get dressed. No, I can't do my pants. I can't do my zipper. I can't do the button on my pants. So your mom still has to come to school. Thank God she doesn't need to wipe you no more, but you still need your mom to help you in the bathroom. Yeah. Jeez, that would suck. It does. He says, well, why don't you try something else? I said, what am I going to try? He goes, ask a friend. I said, what kind of friend is going to take me to the bathroom? He goes, I'll do it. And I'm pausing intentionally because I'm looking at him going, you'll what? I'll take you to the bathroom, man. (laughs) Okay, you know what? This was 1977. We were pretty homophobic then, okay? He says, I'll go. What do I got to do? I don't have to hold it, do I? No, just do the, undo the button, undo the zipper. I go and do my thing. And you pull it up and help me do up my pants, and I go back to class. I can do that. You're going to come into a men's bathroom stall at our high school and not care what anybody thinks? You're going to get made fun of for days, dude. He goes, I play trumpet in the band. It can't get any worse than that. That was his line because we used to make fun of trumpet players. My point is this. I think a lot of people suffering from PTSD feel alone, right? And I understand that, but you're not alone. You're not alone. And if you get to a place where you need help, it's not weak. It's huge courage. It's just as courageous as anything you did serving. It is so courageous to ask for help. And that's the problem is we've got it backwards. Doug helped me, but not only with my pants, with my self-esteem. The hardest phone call I've ever made in my life was the one to uh, the Royal Canadian Legion because I knew I was a mess. Huh. And I couldn't ignore it anymore. 
my wife and I have been trying strategy after strategy for me to keep my temper at the, um, at the kitchen table. Wow. Nothing was working. I could not keep my shit together at the kitchen table. If my kids weren't uh, right on mission, like good little soldiers, I couldn't keep it together. And nobody wanted to be at the table with me because I was, I would wreck every meal. Wow. And, um, the morning or the, 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 the dinner where, uh, so about five years ago. So my, my youngest would have been like seven, just a sweet little guy. And, uh, he tipped his, his plate crumbs are on the floor, crumbs hit the floor. I hit the roof. Dawson, what the fuck is wrong with you? Moron, moron, idiot. And uh, I watched his face melt Wow! in front of me. And uh, then my wife put her hand on my shoulder and said, Mark, they're just crumbs. We can clean them up. And it was that moment where I finally got it. I can't stop. I need help because I have done everything to try to stop. I recognize the problem and I can't do shit about it. So that first phone call, man, well, it was actually an email. And uh, love them or hate them, the Royal Canadian Legion was there for me. And they were Johnny on the spot. I sent out, uh, it was Friday evening was the email. Monday morning, bright and squirrely, they were calling me. And we were talking, an appointment was booked, and they started the process. Because I did not want to admit, I didn't even want to consider the possibility that I had an injury from my service. Of course, I didn't understand that it was an injury then. But I didn't think I needed a checkup from the neck up. And I, and I sure didn't want to blame my service for it. But um, thank God <laughs> I asked for help. People think, well, I'm wearing the cape. You know, especially if you were a first responder or a soldier. Just men in general suffer from it, right? Like, I want to be the hero. I want to wear the fucking cape. Because I'm used to wearing the cape. All the cool stuff I can do, I've repelled out of helicopters. You know, like, I do cool shit. And when that's, um, when you have to be the guy saying, yeah, I can't do this by myself. That is the most courageous thing I've ever done. I want to, I want to tell you, this is, again, I'm not sure how we're doing for time here. I could talk forever. I'm a speaker. I never shut up. <laughs> it is different actually doing a conversation with a pro speaker. Thanks. It, 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 it's, a, it's a different dynamic. It's interesting. I'm, I'm doing my best to adjust on this end. So let's carry on the dude thing for just a minute. Yeah. Again, I want to leave the ladies out here, but dudes, here's the perfect story, Mark. This is the perfect story. Well, I think it is. Back to meeting my wife. So I'm in a hospitality room uh, at, the, at, a, at the Cedar Park Inn in Edmonton, okay, south end of town. It's a best Western hotel now. The architecture, the paint hasn't even changed. I know it. Oh, boy. I'm at this hotel, and I'm speaking at a conference on the following Thursday. This was Tuesday. And I'm sick as a dog, but I've gone to the hospitality room to be a good speaker boy. And I'm going to meet the organizing committee. I hear the organizing committee before I meet 
the organizing committee because they're walking down the hallway from the elevator and all I hear is this women laughter and this one loud laugh in particular. So this woman appears in the doorway of the hospitality room. I don't know if this ever experienced anything like this, Mark, you or anybody in the audience, but it was almost like a spotlight in a theater lit up on her face as she walked in the room. I couldn't stop looking at her. She's laughing. She's got this vivacious smile. She's stunningly gorgeous. Okay, and and I'm I just can't stop looking at her. So she comes over and says, "You're the you're Alvin. You're the speaker on Thursday." Yeah, and I, I'm Darlene. Nice to meet you. And we chatted a little bit, and then we sat down. We were having a glass of wine together, and she said, "You're staring." This is a true story. Okay, I said, "I'm not staring." She goes, "You are so," and you're drooling. I said, "I'm not drooling." <laughs> She was joking about the drooling, but she was dead on about the staring. I couldn't stop looking at her. And, 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 and I was a typical guy. You know, I'm, I'm single. I got a five-year-old kid. I'm not looking for a relationship, but I'm checking. Yeah, she's got a big rock on her finger. She's married. Why are the beautiful ones that you want to be with are always married? Yada, yada, yada. Anyway, we end up becoming friends. Six months later, we're living together. There was no plan for this, okay? I was not looking for a spouse. I had enough problems with my ex. And by the way, God bless you for having a good relationship with yours because my son hasn't seen his mom for 22 years. Her choice, her choice. Point is, Darlene and I hit it off. We became friends on the phone before there was Zoom, okay? Turns out she was at the end of a 10-year-old marriage to an RCMP officer who, when he started his career, was a very different person than 10 years in. He'd never seen any major trauma. He'd only been to car accidents. That's not not trauma. But, you know, nothing violent per se like you might have seen, Mark, okay? But he was not progressing in life. He looked good. He was this stud, right? This tall, blonde, good-looking guy, worked out in a gym. Darlene, beautiful, blonde, blue eyes. I called him Ken and Barbie. When Darlene left him, it wasn't for me. But it was the end of the listening to my story saying we only get one life. We cannot take that for granted. She said that affected me because I was living in a miserable marriage that the guy who didn't want to change because all he was was this guy. He would not open up. He would not show his weakness. He would not show his frailty. And then I meet a guy without arms who's got a kid. You think she planned on this? And then she's introducing me to her family after they get split up. This is my new boyfriend. And her family's going, you left a cop with arms and guns for arms, and you get with a guy that has no arms. What are you thinking? She says, because I met a real man. A real man who's a single father and a sensitive guy, cooks for his kid, teaches him, takes care of him, loves him is responsible for him, is responsible for his own company, is taking care of his own business, he's out there speaking, he's doing things, and by the way, he's got no arms. Where is the stud? That's my point. This is not about a physical strength, and that's why PTSD is so hard for so many men in particular, because they just can't see it as being something they should even let in. Now, I'm a strong guy. No, it affects Every human being on the planet is affected by mental health. Every single one. It's five out of five. It's not one out of five. Absolutely, Alvin. And the um, not only do people really struggle because of the macho thing to ask for help in the first place, but 
admitting that they're even susceptible to it. Mm-hmm. It is so insanely rare that people will do the preventative maintenance that's available. Uh, I just did an equine therapy course. It was fantastic. Six six sessions with the um, uh, horses. I learned so bloody much. And um, I'm going to be doing a show on that uh, soon. I'm still compiling my thoughts. I got my notes on it. But there was one person there that was there preemptively, a first responder. And that is so incredibly rare and yet so obvious why would you like you cops work out because they know at some point in time they're going to have to wrestle with a bad guy and they better be stronger than the bad guy or they're going to get the snot beat out of them yeah well nobody nobody is immune to an osi an operational stress injury to ptsd nobody is immune to that any more than anybody's immune to bullets but you can put on a flak vest not going to help you with a headshot but it's going to help it's going to up your chances of surviving it. It's the same with mental resilience. It's the same. And that's the, the same thing to recover it. Uh, to recover uh, are the same tools that you need to be resilient. It's the mindfulness, the uh, attitude of gratitude, and doing it regularly, like every day, before and after the main calls. Um, and you've got to be on it. And then, like Darlene's ex-husband, you have to be mindful enough to know that there's a problem. We burn through relationships in this community like unbelievable. We just burn through two, three spouses, you know, and probably the biggest reason that we burn through it is we don't go, this is me, I'm the asshole. Yes, that's exactly it. And, you know, to extend that a bit, by the way, to finish the loop on the story, he got married again before Darlene and I got married again, her ex. And married a woman with five kids. And last call, we heard, he's happy as hell, okay? Now, this is tricky because I'm not a psychologist, all right? But I think the reason marriages fail is because the one who's got the problem failed to acknowledge the fact that they're shit to live with, right? My wife has tuned me in so many times. This summer, she didn't tune me in to get me out of my depression, but she said, I saw it. Alvin, I saw the depression lift. Now, No kidding. I'm at our cottage. I'm on a lake. It's beautiful there. How could I be depressed? Because I didn't make that choice. Depression is just, it hits you. It doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. You sitting out in the prairie, taking a knife to your wrist, where's the logic in that? No logic. That's why we need to get help. You know, I got to tell you a first responder story. I thought I might share this with you today. I never share this story. Well, I don't say never. It's rare. I have worked as a speaker with organizations to support PTSD. Okay, one of them was an organization out of Nova Scotia called the Tema Contour Foundation. They try to help people with stress. Tema Contour was a woman who was murdered viciously in Toronto. Uh, the foundation was, uh, was started by her family because one of the people I know through speaking named Vince. Vince was the first responder to that accident. This is going back into the 70s. And he didn't realize how it affected him to see a violent death on his first day on the job in Toronto as an EMT. Way, way back, way before we understood any of this. Tema Conter became the foundation. They sponsored and put on training events across the country. That's changed a little bit now, but that's not the point. I spoke to all the first responders of a Humboldt bus crash. 
Yeah, you just took a breath? Tell me about it. I'm not an expert on this, Mark. Who the hell am I? But I got up in front of 35 people out of the 50 that were there that day, and all I could tell them was, my God, how hard was it to come into this building today? How hard was it for you to get together with people that you shared a moment in time that was not intended, that was not planned, but look what you did. Isn't the irony of PTSD, it happens to the people that have chosen to be the first responders, the people that have chosen to go to war, the people that have chosen to take parts of our society that nobody would ever want to do and do it, and then they get injured in their mind. Where is the fairness, right? Well, welcome to life, folks. Life is not fair. That's the reality, and that is the irony. I look at a guy like you. You don't look like a stud, but you're a hero. And I know some soldiers get tired of that. I'm not a hero. I signed up. That's not the point. You're doing something most of society would never do. So why would you be given this extra thing in your head that you don't deserve? Because there's no answer. There's help, though. That's the key. And shows like this, don't ever, ever be shy of a weakness. My father, not a man of many words. We've only learned to get along, really, just the last few years, Mm -hmm. uh, for which I'm very, very grateful. But um, when I tried to explain to him once, it's like, Dad, you, you can't understand what, what happens in a war. Like, it's, it's, it's beyond description. It's not TV. It's not TV. <laughs> but you know what my dad said? He says, yeah, I imagine that's true, but nor should we. Right. Because that's what you're there for. I can't believe uh, we had, <laughs> this was so, I just had this thought. What a stupid thought. We had a CO2 thing go off 10 years ago here in Calgary. We had just come home from England, another one of those trips I was on. We were tired. It was late. It was freezing cold. Our CO2s go off, our, 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 our warning alarms. So we're, we had two dogs and a cat, and my wife and I are huddled out on our back deck, freezing our butts off. Called 911 first, of course, because that's what you do. The cavalry showed up. Oh, my God, in front of my house. There's a cop car, there's an ambulance, and there's two fire trucks. And we have not got a fire. But those folks, there was mixed men and women, but mostly men, they're coming in the house, and all I could think about was, oh my God, who the hell does this? There's not even a fire. Look at these people. I, I, I'm in awe. I got to tell you, not the romantic awe. Anybody who is a first responder or a military person, anyone who has anything to do with unselfish acts of courage, that I can't begin to thank you. You know, and, and maybe that's the problem is you don't feel gratitude because of what you spoke about, because the mind takes over. But I, you need to know, you know, when people say things like, thanks for your service, please acknowledge it. You know, please say thank you, even though you may not mean it or feel it, because that's how people see you. They see you as genuine heroes. There's so many um, that they don't have their veteran plates on. Mm. And it's because they don't see themselves as veterans. Even people that are in bloody Afghanistan um, that have got a couple tours, they still don't see themselves as veterans because they uh, trivialize their own service. Mm. Uh, One of the episodes I did, there's so much damage that is done by that, by trivializing your own service. There's much more of that that goes on than than the stolen valor, people who exaggerate (laughs) their service or pretend they served and never did. But right now, um, I, I so feel for the police. Uh, the, last, oh. the last two years have been brutal for them. And um, 
it is so hard. Like it, it, there's so many that are quitting right now, especially by the end of this month. Uh, but there are so many that that are uh, getting out of the business because of the hatred and and misinformation about what police are doing. And um, they they take a couple of examples. I mean, in every in any city, there is a thousand police interactions a day, a thousand a day. One or once or twice a year, you're going to take you're going to find an interaction. Take it out of context, and it's going to look bad. There's nothing pretty about a takedown. I've done them, you know, uh, when you, when you tackle somebody, say it's a lady, 120 pound lady. Well, sometimes a 240 pound man can barely manage a 120 pound lady if she's on meth mm-hmm. or, uh, like it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, I've had, I've been on a call with five big brewer, burly officers, right? And this guy, uh, maybe five, six, 110 pounds, but whatever the hell he was on, it took all five of them to pin him down. And even when he was pinned down, he was spitting and trying to bite. So they had to put a spit mask on him, right? Um, people can't imagine what it's like dealing uh, when violence is a part of your job or as an infantry soldier, it was my whole job um, or 90% of it. But when violence is your job, that's because it's not an easy job. Not anybody can do it. You can't send in a social worker to deal with somebody that's off their freaking nut, mm. you know, uh, that's not going to work. It's a great idea. And uh, in theory, and I understand the people that are like, well, you know, you shouldn't tackle that person. You should talk to them. Well, yeah, almost every cop <laughs> tries that first, you know, but it's not always an option. It's the whole, uh, well, just shoot him in the leg argument. Okay, in theory, sure, sounds good, except it doesn't work. It doesn't stop the threat. It's like, and if you understand combat, uh, shoot him in the leg, even if it was possible, which it isn't because nobody's that good. <laughs> but even if it was possible, it, it doesn't work. It's not effective. It's not the right thing to do. But when a person that's never held a gun, much less understanding the impact of a bullet on meat, um, or the fact that you can put three bullets in somebody's chest and they are still coming at you, mm. uh, if you've never seen this, it, people don't understand. So they judge. And that's the problem with any judgment, mm-hmm. you know, um, off air, we can talk about it, but you and I do not share every view and that's how it's supposed to be. That's right. And that's the trouble with social media is we've let it seduce us mm. to take us to a place where we want to fight. We want to argue, you know, what you said was so profound, Mark, because the idea that we would even get what a cop does is ludicrous. Why do they do it? That's even more ludicrous. Why would you get involved in a profession where you're dealing with the lower third subset of our society? And if that sounds crude, I apologize. But the reality is there is a lower subset in our society. Why are our prisons so full of people? Hmm? Well, I would say mental health. Yeah, partially, but also surroundings. You know, we are born into our lives. I think even more profoundly we have to think about this in this context is not everybody gets born 
with a silver spoon in their mouth. Some people are born into violent neighborhoods, born into, you know, back to the reserves, places where there's so little inspiration. And then on top of that, you get desperate, you're hungry, you're druggy, you got to do something, you got to do anything. The police officers have to come and deal with you, and then they do it, and then they're viewed as racist. See, that's the trouble is we've got too many of these trump cards, these little tricky cards that people play, because that's what they do. Think about this. I've thought about this a ton. I'm not left or right or anything political. I'm really not. If anything, I try to be a centrist because of what I do for a living. But the reality is left and right don't get along because the ideologies are so glaringly different right? Left-wing people would look at cops and say exactly what you said. Oh, just chat with them. You know, right-wing people would... I, I got in an elevator in uh, in Atlanta the other day. There was a guy with a gun on his hip. I said, are you a cop? He goes, no. I said, what are you doing with a gun? He goes, because I got a permit to carry one around. And I'm thinking, that is so bizarre. We don't see people carrying a gun around on their hip in Calgary. Does that mean that guns are wrong? No, but we're so good at judging, aren't we? But look where we live. Mm-hmm. Your cabin is in Crystal Frickin' Lake. Yeah. Right? I know Fowler Lake. Like, I know that area. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, gorgeous. I love that area. Lots of sand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in Calgary, even in the roughest parts of Calgary, um, like, you're, you're probably okay with calling 911. Like, you're not going to... There's just not a lot of problems. The safest... The most dangerous city in, in Canada... Uh, is probably safer than the than the safest city in the states, but a friend of mine that lives in Houston, he's like, if you don't have a gun on your hip in downtown Houston at night, you're a moron. Yeah, yeah. So is that right or wrong? It's neither. It is. You know this. I annoy people when I say it is what it is. You know that classic expression. Some people see it as a cop-out. It is what it is. Uh, whatever, can't fix things. I see it the other way around, is we cannot necessarily change the circumstance. You know, it's funny. First thing this morning, I'm on my way here. I am obviously, if people don't know, I went to the wrong. There's actually a 111 crystal something that I went to, and I'm sitting there for the longest time. Why isn't he answering the door? Anyway, the point is I'm sitting there, and my phone bings, so I go to take a look at it. I'm thinking, it's you. No, it's my 36-year-old son who's got a really important job. He lives in Calgary. He lives in an apartment complex with an underground garage he got his vehicle broken into in an underground garage last night they came in smashed the window took his backpack and of course i'm going to say why did you leave your backpack well because it's in an un- it's an insecure underground garage somebody obviously snuck in when the door was open and robbed him now he's in a bad mood today no kidding but what i'm hoping he doesn't do is let that act dominate the idea of what calgary is it's it's so sick that there's people out there that would break a window to get a backpack so they can go and do what? They're probably going to go and buy drugs. Now, am I against drugs? No. In fact, I think legalization of marijuana is one of the greatest things that ever happened to this country. It's the one and only thing that I like about our prime minister. There you go. <laughs> the, the way, so he yeah. gets one. Yeah, but see, that's what I mean, is because you disagree with with you know the Trudeau clan, period, we've gone through this twice, that doesn't necessarily have a happy ending or a sad ending it just is right we have this election it is what it is what i'm trying to say is this i think at the end of the day we don't see the violence okay i don't see the violence but i've seen it i've i've experienced it i've witnessed it the people that choose to immerse themselves in it as we've talked about for a long time today are not only heroes but i can totally understand why they would become racist 
why they would become so many different emotions because they're not they're not going to work for eight hours every day and people are patting them on the back or shaking their hand or giving them a hug. They're seeing the shit of society and how are they not supposed to be affected by that? That's a crazy hard thing to deal with. It is so difficult sometimes not to judge, but uh, I'll give an extreme example that happened really recently. Um, it is so rare that I hear anything that is truly racist anymore. It is just so rare that I, like, like we're talking, you know, um, Mississippi wind chime kind of horrible level jokes, right? Yeah. Like just freaking horrendous. It is so rare that I hear it that when I do, I'm like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> the hell. And I was at uh, at a Princess Auto, and I hear the accent on a fella, and I said, oh, you're from, from South Africa? He goes, no, over, over Zimbabwe. I said, oh, Rhodesia. And then he knew immediately that, uh, that I knew my, a little bit about geography and history. And um, I said, yeah, I got some friends, and they're not from Zimbabwe, they're Rhodesian, damn it. In a terrible Rhodesian accent, and um, <laughs> and he and he pulls out a picture of the Rhodesian flag or Zimbabwe flag, and he explains this is where the white people are, this is where the black people are, and this is the barbed wire to keep them out. And I was just freaking mortified, right? Just mortified. But at the same time, I've met people from this area, and I get how although it, it you couldn't sound more racist, but it, but it actually isn't. It's, it's war. And yeah. this happens in every war, every time. Still didn't like it. And I had to take a real breath, <laughs> you know, and I was just quiet. And then they commented, it's like, oh, he's being quiet. I'm like, yeah, I don't share your humor. But I, you know, so instead of uh, freaking out at him, wagging my finger and calling him names, I just said, I don't share your humor. Yes. I don't find that funny. Um, at the same time, as as difficult it is it, it, it for me to hear what you just said, I also don't judge it because I know war, and I know that in a war you dehumanize each other, mm-hmm. and both sides will do it, you know, and and and, and I get it. It just the 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 it is easier said than done to walk a mile in somebody's shoes. You know, it is difficult, and most times you can't. But you're not supposed to be able to truly understand. You're supposed to try. You're supposed to try. You're supposed to take a moment just to realize that I can't really understand what they're going through, but it's my job to try. The bottom line is, and it's really our entire conversation today, Alvin, kindness. I want to I want to share something real quick because I know we're getting on this on the on the long side of the show. We're just about there. Okay. So here's, here's, uh, I, I hope this helps. Okay. Sincerely, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I am noticed by every, every conceivable group of humanity. Okay. Quick story. When I first started speaking way back in 1981, International Year of Disabled Persons. I go into a school in Regina, Saskatchewan, where I was living at the time. I used to be a DJ, actually. That's why I love a microphone. And uh, I get invited to talk to these kids about the year. So I get up in front of them, okay? There's a bunch of first graders. I'm not sure if kindergarten was there. I just don't remember. It doesn't matter. But they were like six years old. This had never happened to me before. Five minutes into my show, 
the entire front row of six-year-olds pull their arms inside their shirts. They look up at the stage and they shake their body like this. They're shaking, they've got their arms stuck inside, right? And their sleeves are, are flapping and they're laughing. Now, pretend you're me, Mark. Would that offend you? <laughs> Just curious, what would you think? It depends if it was done with love or hate, I Precisely, guess. Precisely, but that's my point, is some would choose to be offended. I saw the humor. It was in a moment in time, and I thought, okay, this is a one-time event. Wrong. It still happens in 2021. It still happens. Now, this was regionalized. This was Regina, okay? And then I moved to Alberta. I lived in Wetaskiwin for a while. I started traveling around Alberta in the early 80s, and then I moved back to Saskatchewan. It seemed every time I went to an elementary school and the six-year-olds or five-year-olds in the front row, they always did it, the same thing. And this went on year after year after year. I thought, well, it's a Canadian thing. And then I went to the States, and they did it there. And then I went to Australia. First time I visited an international nation was Australia. Spoke schools there. They did it there. And then I went over to Europe, and they did it there. And then I found myself in Asia. They did it there. I went to Uganda in 2015 or 16, and I'm at a school there. It's a school in the middle of nowhere. I was there with Rotary. We were doing a community project. I go there, and the kids are pulling their arms inside their shirts. Big, brilliant smiles, these beautiful black faces and these brilliant white teeth, and these kids are doing the same thing. And I'm thinking to myself, children are children everywhere. Therefore, Human beings are human beings everywhere. I, I don't know if this is above my pay grade now, Mark. You were at war. And the sad part about it is you were on one side of a human conflict. Nobody was right. Nobody was wrong. And the humanity is what we're missing. And, and COVID, you want to hear a weird one? I believe that COVID was on its way to fixing so many ills across our planet. Because everybody's affected. Queen Elizabeth was affected. Trump was affected. You're affected. I'm affected. There's no grounds for anywhere of one over the other. Everyone needed to be the same. We're all one person of planet Earth. It's a level playing field. That's cheesy, isn't it? But the reality is that's what I've always felt. I've always felt like we're all just human beings on different journeys in the same road. And COVID proved it. And then George Floyd came along. And all of the goodwill, because I saw it, Mark, I saw people with goodwill opening doors for people, being polite to each other, giving each other space, because we didn't know what to do. There were some of those out there that the media chose to focus on, that there were the, the difficult ones, the aunties, I call them. And again, we're going to agree on some things, disagree on others. But the point is this, we do too much of this rights. We have a right. What about living in a mindset of privilege? But you see, that got hijacked too by the white privilege thing, didn't it? I used to use that all the time, rights and privileges. Fact is, I'm white, so a lot of times in the States when I'm working, especially in a mixed-race community, they mistake what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the fact that I deny white privilege. Of course it's there. I deny colonialism. No, of course it was there. But Mark, we need to move on. Our society needs to move forward. And unfortunately, too many of the voices are stuck in the past. Well, it's back to this, you can't suck and blow at the same time. Yep. You can't be, I mean, acknowledging the problems, yes, that's, it's, it's critical. Mm-hmm. And, and in many cases, like we said, it hasn't been done properly. So yes, we have to acknowledge it, but we have to be solution-focused. Yep. So acknowledge the problems, but focus on the solutions and in moving forward. Because if you don't, you just don't progress. It's a boat anchor around your neck, and you can't move forward. 
Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you one more thing. I was profoundly affected by Martin Luther King, believe it or not, in my youth, because he was famous in my youth. Remember, I'm old. I'm, I'm 61. And my dad would read the newspaper to me. That was one of the things he did when I was a little boy. And believe it or not, my white, almost bigoted dad, because he was from that era, born in 1907, okay, in England, came to Canada. He was that era. He was that, that age of bigot. He didn't intend it to be, but, you know, just saw things that way. So you'd think he would have been racist, but he wasn't. Because all of his clients that he dealt with as a service manager for a farm implement dealership, there were, there were no black folk. But the reality was he understood differences because he'd been to war. He'd been to World War II, blah, blah, blah. With me... He constantly reminded me that people looked at me and called me different. So he would use the words of Martin Luther King, character, more important than the color of your skin. What's that got to do with a white guy? It doesn't have anything to do with this color of his skin. It's got everything to do with content of character. Character knows no skin color, knows no bank account, knows no hierarchy. Character is the only thing in our world that is free. Think about it. That's the problem with identity politics in general, it's, um, which is actually an arm of Marxism, but that's a whole other conversation. It sure is. Um, there's a reason that our individual rights uh, are what they are, and there's a reason that they're important. Um, I'm not looking forward to this November 11th because... Um, of how much we've we've conceded in the world of rights. And this is the area where you and I probably differ a little bit. And that's fine. But that's okay. Um, it's okay to differ. My mission lately on my social media posts, and I usually accomplish it, is to if, say what I feel needs to be said with respect and with reverence and with kindness because that is the leadership that's needed. Mm-hmm. You know, calling any group of people down, calling them names, isn't beneficial. No. It, do, it doesn't make your argument better or stronger. And it just increases division. And we can't afford that right now, Alvin. No. We can't afford to contribute to division. We've already got too much of it. So every, I'm so careful mm-hmm. to, to challenge people to think and think for themselves and to use critical thought I, you know, and, and I will, I will challenge them to do it, but I'll do it with, um, using always mindful of Graham's hierarchy of arguments, which is refuting the central point is at the bottom name calling is at the top name calling is at the bottom and then everything else is in between, um, impugning somebody's character. That's not helpful. Uh, challenging their credentials. That's not helpful. Focus on the central point, you know, the don't shoot the messenger thing, focus on the central point and consider the possibility that you might not be right. You might not be right. And that's okay. That's okay to not be right. You know, um, and even if you are right, have, give somebody the right to be wrong. It's okay to be wrong. If we're judged for uh, everything, every stupid belief that, that, that we have, um, my kids used to believe in Santa Claus. So did I. I know that my audience is uh, generally over the age of 25, so we're safe. You know, we're not ruining anybody's Christmas here. Um, but they're not an idiot because they believed in Santa Claus. They trusted their parents. Mom and dad said that there's a Santa Claus. They're not morons for that. So it's okay. 
You know, as we close this up, this is something that really profoundly altered my sense of reality, and it was subtle. But all of a sudden, it was like subtle to boom, hit me right in the head one day. I travel to lots of schools still, although most of my work now is with corporate, but I still go to tons of schools, all right? And something that really was fascinating to me, I went to a school in Vancouver. There's two parts of this story, real quick. Went to a school in Vancouver, probably in the late 80s, like I met you or you heard me in early 90s. And it was on the, uh, the west side of, of Vancouver. It was a wealthy neighborhood. It was a private school. And it was almost all white. Okay. I went there four years ago because I'd been there before. But I went there four years ago. Same school name. I saw nobody white except some few teachers. Almost every child in that school was Asian. Now, how did the school have the same name, but the population changed so much? Because that's what our society reflects. We've changed. Here's the next one that hit me over the head, really powerfully. I so vividly remember growing up in the 60s and 70s, you never saw a mixed race couple, ever. Now they're everywhere. Why? Well, because we've changed. Now, some might say, well, I don't like those mixed race couples. That's your right. I've never heard that, actually. Well, <laughs> At least not in the last I've, 12 years or I've so. I've heard it. I've heard people. Let's not even get into homophobia, okay? You don't have to agree with the concept of homosexuality. You don't even have to agree with the concept of LGBTQ, which has become so popular, all right? For some people, it offends their faith. I get that. But here's the reality. Live in their life. And then you can understand why we need to all get along better. It's down to kindness and empathy. Absolutely. Um, it's so simple. Mark. Like yourself, uh, I mean, most people will, will peg me as, rate, as right. I've even been uh, <laughs> accused of far right. It's not true. Um, and yet on, on the, I have beliefs all over the map. Right. I had on the show, because it's all about conversations and learning. Yeah. Uh, I know, at least I believe, I should say, is, 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 is wiser to say, I believe that gender is a spectrum. I believe that sexuality is a spectrum. And I, I believe that because I've spoken to people who that's their life and they've explained it to me. And I was mature enough, adult enough to listen. It was a wonderful episode. And, um, so now that I get it, because it's been explained, I'm like, oh, yeah. So when I hear somebody make fun of like 37 genders or, or, or whatever, well, I, it sounds bloody ridiculous, but it's true. But it's not 37. It's, it, it, it's really, it's a, it's a spectrum. It's a scale. Yeah. And so I get it. Now, why is it so offensive to consider that that might be the truth? And why is it so offensive to consider that that's actually a misinterpretation of the science? Both are okay. Let's not be offended by different ideas. Let's be curious about them. Mm -hmm. You know, like a person's life is their life. Instead of uh, being offended or upset or uncomfortable, well, we're uncomfortable when we don't talk to each other. That's where we're, and it's tribal. It, that's our amygdala, just do, just trying to keep you alive. It's all it is. It's why we racially profile people. That we can't help it. Everybody does it, and I don't care what they, what they say. Everybody does it uh, because that's your amygdala. It's your that's your 
flight, fight, freeze part of your brain because we're still tribal creatures. And when we recognize somebody, they're familiar, we automatically like them a little bit more. But before we're introduced, fear, apprehension, because that's that's what cavemen do. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, living in the caves is only 10,000 years ago, like it's yesterday. You know, it's not long ago. And uh, we're just living in bigger tribes now. But tribalism, fight, flight, freeze, living in the amygdala, um, we haven't moved past that. That's still a part of who we are. We like to pretend that we're evolved beyond that, but we still have a lobster brain at some point, (laughs) you know, at some level. So we have to look at ourselves uh, without being too impressed with ourselves. It's like, wait a second, you know, this is just how brains work. But we can also train our brain. To, to think of a different response, absolutely. right? The ARO idea, okay? And that's the mindfulness. Let's close a loop for just a second here. So my wife and I are sitting at the light, and I've just swore at the guy in the Aston Martin, remember? And I'm hoping he'll hit a tree and die. I wonder so, if it was Theo Fleury. Yeah. He's got an Aston yeah, Martin. It's well, really it wasn't nice. him. I, I, I would have recognized Theo. Anyway, the fact of the matter is, my wife and I had a husband-wife thing for a day because she was really upset with me for saying that. She was really upset. So I finally you know, grabbed some cojones and said, okay, honey, please explain this concept to me of sympathetic joy. So she explained it to me. Mark, you can't make stuff like this up. Two days later, I need to go to a boat dealership to get a part for my boat, okay, here in Calgary. And I go there with my son, and as we're standing around waiting for a moment or two, this guy drives up in an antique Mercedes Gullwing, baby blue, okay, probably 56, 57, something like that, stunningly beautiful car. Was I jealous? You think? And I'm looking at this guy, and I'm thinking about what my wife said, and I walked over with my son, and he's getting out of this thing. The gull wing goes up. Then the dude steps out. You know, it's summer. It's, he's tanned. He's got shorts on. He's same almost exact outfit as the other dude, okay? Just a really, unfortunately for me, good-looking guy. So he's got the car. He's got the looks. He gets out of his car. I'm 10 feet away. He just looks at me, and all I could think to say was, that is the most beautiful car I've ever seen in my entire life. And he smiles. He says, thanks. Little gift to myself. I said, oh, yeah? He says, yeah, I just, uh, I just retired. He said, I spent my entire life in the oil industry, and I sold my shares in my company, and I made a few million dollars. So I bought that for my first toy, and I'm coming to this boat dealership today to get my second one. And I go, good for you, buddy. That's awesome. I mean, my God, what a beautiful car. Can I, can I sit in it? Oh, sure. Have a seat. So I sat in it and I get out and I said, you know, man, you should be so proud of yourself. You deserve this. And he's looking at me funny. I'm going, what's wrong? He says, it's really amazing that a total stranger would be happy for me. Because all I feel like when I'm driving my gullwing around lately, he said this, Mark, I feel like they want me to hit a tree and die. That's what he said. So we can alter our mind, even though we may not be able to control PTSD per se, we can alter the way that we react to things in our world. And that, if I could leave anything with you today, I didn't, this was not a mistake. By being born without arms, it wasn't a mistake. This wasn't a tragedy. Mark, this was a blessing. This was a blessing. PTSD is not a blessing, but the life you've been given is. Please value that life. It's all I can tell. I believe that it's all a blessing. I really do. Mm. And that 
from a spiritual perspective, and I, I might be alone on this one, but um, I, I believe that from a woo-woo perspective, that might even be true, whether it's true or not, uh, it, it works for me, is that we all signed a soul contract when we came to this planet. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I saw a meme that actually works really well for this. I asked God to make me stronger, so he gave me more weight to carry. Mm. Asked me to, uh, asked him, God, make me wiser, so he gave me problems to solve. And I, I believe we signed up for it. I believe that you asked to have no arms on purpose. When you were a soul, you know, you're just a, a light buzzing around the universe. And uh, so, Alvin, for your next life, you know, you know what would be fucking weird and cool? Maybe born without arms. This, this, you know, don't let me figure out how to wipe my ass till I'm 16. <laughs> it's like, all right, man. And why? I don't know. Maybe in your previous life was a silver spoon, you know, and everything was uh, sunshine and rainbows. And, and this is what you needed to balance it out. I don't know. But I, it's my belief, and it works for me. And it's a way of, whether it's true or not, is irrelevant. Um, but looking at life this way, that we all, before we came to this planet, we said, this is what I want, and there's a certain amount of predetermination and destiny. Um, maybe not with this specific specifics but for the generality and if we if we're having a hard hard life we uh, this is what we asked for so that we can learn and grow well it's only under the pressure that we can grow and learn the, the wisdom that that you have you couldn't have got without you don't get those insights when you're skating through life if everything's handed to you and you don't learn shit all you do is entertain yourself all day. It's uh, social masturbation. You know, like there, there, there's nothing of substance that's happening. So I value the, the the challenges. I don't lament them. I mean, I lament them in the, more, in the moment. I get over it as quickly as I can because all of it is a gift. Uh, be, being injured, I, all, all of this, I signed up for it. Mm-hmm. I signed up for it. I don't know why I signed up for so much. I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but I signed up for it. And I think my job, I think everybody's job is to get through life without turning into an asshole. Yeah. You know, one of my lines, this Mm. is the best one ever. I started using this in high schools and I got some really evil looks until I was able to explain myself. And I often finish my high school assemblies with, hey folks, it's real simple. Don't be a dick. That's it. Or Dr. Jody Carrington, just be fucking nice, <laughs> right? And, and, but but it's true. It's it's really the bottom line. And walk a mile. Yeah, you know, don't judge. Instead of judging, find yourself. And here's how to know when you're judging. You shoulda, but you coulda. Yeah. Well, I woulda. You're being a dick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and honor people, right? Honor yeah. their journey. You know, I I was at a thing in this same place I met Robin Williams' daughter. There was a, a homeless choir that were performing there. And they were in the green room. And this black man, probably 60s, early 60s, sat down and, and said he saw me playing the drums. And I said, oh, yeah, uh, what'd you think? He goes, man, I, I miss my other life. I said, what life was that? He goes, oh, he says, uh, as you know, we're homeless. And I said, so what's your story? 
he said, I was actually a recording artist. And in fact, I was very successful. And this was back in the 60s and 70s. He says, I was making millions. So we're in New York, okay? And he's saying, and, and it all just fell apart. How'd that happen? He says, well, I had money. So I got to buy drugs. And I started with pot, and that was okay. I still like pot, he says. But then I got into coke. And then I got into heroin. And then I got into meth. And then before you knew it, I wasn't showing up to record. And I wasn't showing up to play. And I'd rather be stoned than play. So I lost my record contract. And then I lost my wife. And then I lost my home. And then before I knew it, I was on the street. Took six months. Couldn't believe it. How long ago was that? He goes, 25 years ago. I said, you've been on the street 25 years? Yeah. How you doing now? He goes, I found the choir. I'm back playing again. I'm back singing again. But he says, all because I let my life get out of control when I knew better. But he says, you know what? I got to tell you, there's a story like that of every single person in this room. We see homeless people and we think of them as objects, right? It's um, part of my soapbox for sure. Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, I'm one of them. I'm uncomfortable with them. I'm not going to lie about it. But if you think about what I said, that every person on this planet is a human soul, that's what works for me. I can see the humanity in these people. I can even see the humanity in the angry people that get out there and protest. I can even, I was in the barber shop the other day and people may not be able to tell, but we must go to the same barber. Um, this guy comes in without a mask and he's got long hair. And he comes into the barbershop, and they, they didn't tell him to leave. I got my mask on. I'm getting my hair cut. He just sat there for 10 minutes before I was almost done and had to go, bitching about this government, bitching about the rules, bitching about COVID, bitching about masks and vaccinations. And I sat there listening to him, and I, it took everything in my power not to say something out loud. But I realized that's where we are now, isn't it? You don't have to agree. But sometimes you just got to swallow it, let it go, and realize that's what living in a democracy is all about, a democracy that you help defend, my friend. And that is so important that no matter how strongly you disagree with somebody, even if you are certain that you're right and they're wrong, there might be a reason. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I hate wearing the mask because it causes me unbearable anxiety, but you can't see it. It's invisible. So I'm not trading, gar trading here. Try putting one on with your freaking feet, man. Oh, yeah. I hate them. Yeah. I can't stand, but but I do. I will. Yeah. Not because I'm weak. Okay? No. That, Mark, this is a really important thing to finish off with. This is not about sticking to your guns because you want to be strong. There's conviction. There's the power of our own choice. But then there's also the big picture. That's what I would like people to think about. We, we need to acknowledge that the bigger picture, you know, is very important. And if we're going to get through this, I've been triple vaccinated, my friend. I, when I went down, I, I wrote this just uh, the other day. I, I actually did a video about it on, on my website, and, and on I call it On the Road with Alvin. They're little videos I shoot, right? I saw that one. Yeah. yeah. So I'm saying I had to go to the States. To get on a plane, I had to have a test. I had to have a vaccination. I had to wear a mask. Did I want to? No. But if I'm going to get on the plane, that's what I got to do. That's what I'm trying to tell your audience is you may not agree with the politics, but at the end of the day, if we want to all get to a place where we will be not the old normal, not the new normal, not a normal, just the next stage of our existence, we're going to have to swallow it a little bit. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to lecture, and I'm not trying to disagree with you, because I absolutely agree with you. But like you said, I will respect your opinion, but in this case, this is less about conjecture and more about just public health. And with that... <laughs> We're at a, one hour and 57.
You're kidding. Yeah, wow, it goes, goes quickly, doesn't it? It was a pleasure. Alvin, I've been looking forward to having you on the show for bloody ever. And uh, it's just so great. Because you did. You did make an impact on my life uh, when I was uh, 17 years old, 17, 18 years old. And, and I remembered, you know. And that is what a gift the, that you can make an impact on thousands uh, at a time. Salisbury was a big school. It was. You know, and uh, thousands at a time. I was going to ask you, I might as well ask you on air. Um, uh, if I remember the story right, did you, did you once uh, drum with uh, um, Def Leppard? No, um, that, that kind of got mixed up in a storyline of him losing his arm. Oh, okay. I actually drummed with Billy Joel. Oh, okay. That's the story I would have told because it would okay. have been really current in my mind in 89 because in yeah. 1981, the same year that I quit my radio job in Regina to go out and speak and live in Wetaskiwin, Alberta, right? Um, I got to do a telethon in the States that I met Russell Jabbers who played rhythm guitar with the Billy Joel band in those days and we hit it off. He was actually a perfect example of what we're talking about today. He met me and he was totally uncomfortable with my having no arms. Yeah. And we're at this fancy banquet and we're sitting next to each other and all he can look at is see the disability until I was asked to get up and play the drums with the house band at this fundraiser, right? Before the telethon. And then he looks at me and goes, you play like shit, man. You're great. You're incredible. We became pals, believe it or not. So who's coming to Edmonton Northlands Coliseum on the Glass Houses tour in 1981 but Billy Joel? Therefore, Russell Javers. So I'm in Wetaskiwin, 45 minutes away. I get invited to the spend the day with Billy Joel and his band. Okay? We go to the sound check. Russell Javers is the guitar player, but Liberty DeVito's the drummer, and they're in on a joke. They do jokes on Billy all the time. During the sound check, Billy's kind of plucking at his piano and playing a little bit and farting around. Liberty sneaks me in to play the drums, and we start playing the guitar riff for I Can't Get No Satisfaction as a warm-up. Just, just what they're doing. They're just doing sound checks. They don't need to practice. All of a sudden, Billy looks and sees that the drummer that he knows is not the drummer that he sees, and I'm playing with my feet, and literally he gets up from the piano, stops in the middle of the song, the band keeps playing and he gives me and liberty double fingers right and later on we talked at dinner we talked and billy said literally billy joel says this to me as a 21 year old man do you plan on being a professional drummer i went i have no plan right now i'm being a speaker i'm a dj i'd love to play music for a living he says don't quit your day job and i said really he goes look you're amazing man i'll give you that but my buddy liberty there's a reason he's got four limbs because playing in a rock band is not easy, and you would not want this life. He goes, you're an inspiration, but don't follow a path that's going to hurt you or even crush you. Do what you do best. Just be you. I'll never forget that. I was a 21-year-old kid. I had to face my ego and go, I can't play the drums for a living? Well, that doesn't mean I stopped playing the drums. I just didn't do it in a rock band. That's what life is. The instruments. I remember uh, uh, reading your book talking about uh, playing the piano. Yeah. And you were told, your, your toes aren't long enough. Yeah. It's like, well, look at me go now. So it was trombone, piano, drums. Yeah, and that's it. Uh, that's amazing. It's actually trombone, drums, piano. And the piano, want to hear a great line? My okay. wife thought of this. All right. My toes weren't too short. Her mind was too small. 
Oh, isn't that the truth? And with that, that is episode 140 of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. And um, I, I, thank you so much, Alvin, for being here. And, My pleasure. Uh, I, I, what a treat uh, for, 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 our, for our audience to have you. And talk about overcoming obstacles. Thanks, man. Thanks for who you are. Hey, thanks, brother. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, this will be rebroadcast on uh, Thursday, and every Thursday an episode will be dropping at 11 a.m. Mountain Standard Time on all the major podcast channels. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear, because sharing is caring. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring.